When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Central banks are in a new staring contest with the bond market. As the prospects for inflation remain clouded in uncertainty, investors are raising their bets that interest rates will rise sooner than expected. Who will blink first? You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Henry Trix, The Economist's Schumpeter columnist, and also on today's show, the UN Climate Summit COP26 might just be the most corporate COP ever. How will the private sector set the tone in Glasgow? Some of that is sincere. Some of that is business-motivated companies making sure they don't get whacked by an enormous carbon tax unexpectedly. And some of that is greenwashing. And decades of effort to close the gender pay gap have so far failed to do so. Is the problem discrimination or a fundamental design flaw with the world of work? There are jobs that pay demonstrably more for excessive hours, rush time, weekend, evening, vacation. Those are the greedy jobs. First, these are heady times in the global markets for the buying and selling of government bonds. The big unwind is set to begin at last. Today, the Federal Reserve is expected to announce its plan to taper its purchases of government bonds. The Bank of England meets tomorrow. The speed of this tapering could indicate the timeline for raising interest rates. That's something that always puts investors on edge. As expectations of inflation have edged up, bond traders are increasingly betting on a shift in central bank strategy. Government bond yields are rising. Government bond prices move in the opposite direction to yields. Yields are basically the sort of return, you can think of them as the sort of interest rate on a government bond. As investors sell government bonds, those yields rise. Mike Bird is The Economist's Asia business and finance editor. 
it suggests that investors think that the recent rise in inflation might be a bit more long-lasting than central banks have been suggesting. One of the buzzwords this year has been transitory. The transitory stuff. Is, is inflation uh, was really transitory? The vogue of transitory. Does transitory become more persistent? You think persistent? the Fed means when they say transitory mode? Transitory inflation. The idea that the rises in prices that we're seeing are driven mostly by factors that are to do with the end of the pandemic. So you wouldn't want to be hiking interest rates to change financial conditions in the economy in response to them. What is clearly happening in markets now is a greater number of investors expect that these forces aren't necessarily all transitory and that in reaction to that, central banks are going to be forced to raise interest rates considerably more than they would have expected. Many central banks have laid out a path where they expect to raise interest rates very little in the next few years. They're going to re-engage what's called monetary tightening a lot more slowly than they might have after previous crises. And basically, I would say that financial markets are testing that theory right now. What indications do we have so far about how central banks are actually going to respond to that test? So we saw a move yesterday from the Reserve Bank of Australia. At our meeting, we agreed to first maintain the target for the cash rate at 10 basis points. Second, continue to purchase government bonds at the rate of $4 billion a week until February next year, with a further review to be undertaken then. And third, we decided to discontinue the target for the yield on the April 2024 bond. They had basically said that they wanted their three-year government bond yield to be around uh, 0.1%. The market had pretty seriously tested that last week. That yield had risen very rapidly to about 0.6%, I'd like to take this opportunity to explain these decisions, particularly the decision to discontinue the yield target. And I want to also um, answer your questions. Basically, the market suggesting we don't believe you're going to control this yield curve anymore. The RBA came out on Tuesday and said, you're right, we're not going to control this yield curve anymore. We saw something slightly similar from the Bank of Canada at the previous week. With the economy once again growing robustly, Governing Council judged the QE is no longer needed. The Bank of Canada came out and they ended their quantitative easing scheme for everything other than reinvestment quicker than people expected. This means we will stop growing our holdings of Government of Canada bonds. And you've seen the bond market move ahead of that already. Now, some central banks are a little more reticent to do that. The Federal Reserve and European Central Bank in particular have tried to be pretty slow. Our analysis certainly uh, does not support that the conditions of our forward guidance are satisfied at the time of liftoff as expected by markets, nor, nor any time soon thereafter. So You had you uh, Christine this. Lagarde, the president of the European Central Bank, last week basically suggesting that markets were getting a little bit ahead of themselves. We really very deeply looked and tested our analysis of the uh, drivers of inflation, and we are confident that our um, anticipation and our analysis is actually correct. The Federal Reserve is meeting today. The Bank of England is meeting tomorrow. Both of those will provide investors some information as to how central bankers are seeing this, how they're seeing inflation building and how they intend to respond to that. It always used to be said that the bond market could act like a vigilante, punishing central banks and governments for being too accommodating with their policy making. So, I'm curious, are they showing their full vigilante-like vengeance here? And if they are, how serious could that be for the markets? 
So for starters, it's been a very, very bad past decade and a bit to be a bond market vigilante. It has been a terrible old time of it. Anytime you have bet on central banks raising interest rates and called their bluff, you have been run into the ground repeatedly pretty much everywhere in the world. Every interest rate hike that central banks have pursued in the past 12 or so years has subsequently been reversed in Europe, in the US. You've got places like Japan where people have been betting for a massive sell-off in Japanese government bonds for, for years and years, and it never comes. And this is often called the, the widow-maker trade. And this is actually a slightly different situation where there genuinely is some expectation now priced into markets for somewhat higher inflation. We are breaking ground here that really hasn't been seen, not just since before the financial crisis in 2008, but hasn't really been seen in, in decades. Now, whether it turns out that that's transitory or not, I don't think the central bankers have a good idea of, frankly. I don't think anyone does. But what we're seeing here is a level of uncertainty being priced in that I think we're not really used to on what's happening in inflation and the sort of structure of the economy in general and how bond markets should react to that. So you've got this variety of opinions that I think does make it very serious. And you talked about this sort of dance between the bond markets and the central banks. How is that relationship between them shifting? Former Federal Reserve Chair Ben Bernanke once referred to this, and this is going back quite a long time, but he referred to it as the hall of mirrors problem. Central banks set short-term interest rates. They are in charge of that. That is basically their job, and it's the main tool they have to guide the economy. But they set that based on what they expect is happening in the macro economy. And part of the, the, the way that they gauge that is by looking at what's happening in financial markets. So you have this sort of potential feedback loop where the, the Fed, other central banks are looking at financial markets for information and the financial markets are looking to the central bank for information. And you can end up in a position where it's not clear who's in charge. I think without a sort of very clear idea of what's going to happen and what sort of economic circumstances we're in, it's hard for the central banks to, to sort of provide leadership over this. And it starts to strain some of the thinking in central banking that's been happening in the last few years. You've seen Jerome Powell, chairman of the Federal Reserve, the standard bearer of this change in the Fed's thinking about inflation. They very much this time wanted to see the sort of whites of the eyes of inflation before acting. And I think what you're seeing is a lot of central bankers who probably agree with that to some degree, slightly panicking, you know, as it actually gets to it, it. It's one thing to talk about, oh, we should let inflation run above its target for a little while. It's another thing to actually have that inflation with you and say, I'm actually going to hold out. So this is a really fascinating moment. Let me ask you, Mike, what are the kind of contingent risks here? Does this volatility mean that we should even start to be concerned about the stock market? The volatility, I think, basically just reflects that uncertainty. Different investors making different bets, hedging themselves against things. They might have to pay a little bit more for that. In the equity markets, the interesting thing is you really can't see a lot of this reflected yet. You're seeing a big uptick in volatility in the bond market, certainly the biggest since the pandemic began. You're also seeing US equity markets sort of at or near record levels. You're seeing the Dow Jones industrial average near its sort of um, mythical 36,000 level. Basically, I would say at the moment, the equity markets are pretty chilled about this, which is a good sign because it suggests that Whatever's going on in the bond market, it's not turning into a worry 
at the moment that these central banks are, are about to make a massive policy error, that they're about to hike interest rates, crush the recovery for no reason. People don't seem to be worried about that yet, which is a good thing, whichever way you look at it. So lots to keep tabs on. Thanks very much indeed, Mike. Great to talk. Thanks, Henry. And to follow our analysis of central banks' next move, subscribe to The Economist. There's a special offer for listeners at economist.com forward slash podcast offer. And that link is in the notes for this episode. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Next. They've battled queues in icy weather, and it is now day four of the COP26 UN Climate Summit in Glasgow, where today it's Finance Day. The big task? How to pay for the green revolution that could limit global warming and create the incentives to accelerate decarbonisation. This year's summit may be the most corporate COP ever. Despite complaints about the influx of executives and their PR retinues driving up the cost of accommodation, there's also an expectation that promises by the private sector would be a crucial part of whether this summit is judged to have been a success. It used to be the case that these kind of big UN climate summits were were mostly attended by politicians and scientists and kind of environmental campaigners. Guy Scriven is our climate risk correspondent. But increasingly you're seeing that change. And in the last few COPs, you see more and more private sector, big investors, bankers, corporate bosses. Some of them hold sideshows. Jeff Bezos gave a speech on one of the main stages the other day. And that comes on the back of a growing realisation from businesses and investors that climate change is happening and it matters to their bottom line. The big news today is that Mark Carney's Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, or the uh, the weird acronym GFANS, released the sort of save the world style announcement today about financing the energy transition as if we're almost there. So GFANS said it had managed to corral up to $130 trillion of private capital, committing to hit net zero emissions targets by 2050 from more than 450 banks, insurers and asset managers in 45 countries. Guy, is this triumphalist blather or how meaningful is it? Yeah, well, it's a good question. Um, I I wouldn't get too excited uh, about the kind of GFAN's announcement. It's very unclear what share of global emissions these net zero promises actually cover. I asked kind of representatives from GFANS this earlier today, and they said they didn't have a figure. And to be fair to them, calculating a figure would be would be kind of an impossible task in a sense. But we published a, a piece last year where we, we tried to calculate the kind of share of global emissions from publicly listed companies that are not 
state controlled and we came to a figure of kind of between 20 and 30 percent of global emissions and so one shortcoming of this is basically that there are a lot of emissions which are the result of state-owned firms like Saudi Aramco, which is the world's biggest oil producer, or kind of large Chinese coal producers, which something like GFANS just can't really impact. Another kind of concern is measurement. So a lot of the methodologies around how exactly you attribute carbon emissions to say a bank or, or an asset manager and how you kind of divvy that all up. The methodologies are still really in development for a lot of these things. And so they've decided to settle these targets, but it's not entirely clear what exactly they're measuring and what exactly they're going to try to reduce. Well, as ever, I guess the big issue here is incentives. Is there anything in here that changes the incentives of asset managers? This can actually create quite perverse incentives for asset owners and asset managers. If you are a asset manager and you hold a portfolio of, of international companies and you want to reduce the carbon footprint of your portfolio, the simplest and, and kind of quickest thing to do is basically to dump all your kind of dirty stocks coal mine companies and your oil and gas giants and to instead basically buy lots of big tech stocks who have kind of tend to have very small carbon footprints relative to the revenue they generate. Even if big asset owners and asset managers dump coal mines and oil and gas companies, you know, someone else is likely to buy them and, and the emissions don't get stopped. They just get transferred to a different set of hands. So a healthy scepticism there. And I guess we should point out that at least it shows that the private sector is trying to match government, at least in the scale of its ambition. But looking beyond GFANS, uh, what do you think the private sector is hoping to get out of COP? What, what are their priorities? They are looking for kind of clear signals about regulation and how that might change. These are things like promises that countries will phase out coal or ban the sale of kind of internal combustion engines, which countries are signing up and whether these are likely to translate into kind of concrete policy changes. Earlier this week, there was a, a big government announcement where I think over 100 countries signed up to a pledge to reduce uh, methane emissions. And one of the big sources of this is from oil and gas companies. So it's going to be interesting to kind of follow that and see how the uh, big fossil fuel producers respond to these changes in policy. Any likelihood of the biggest potential carbon buster of all, at least in terms of what economists talk about, that is a kind of globally coordinated carbon market? Well, there are some kind of smaller and related things happening. So one is a, a kind of international discussion about what's called Article 6 in the Paris Agreement, how countries could transfer carbon offsets between each other in the event that they perform better than their current climate plans. It's possible we may see progress on that. And another thing which is related to the carbon markets is the publication of a kind of blueprint for a uh, carbon offset market. 
And that's important because it's these offsets that businesses will have to buy if they can't meet their net zero targets simply by reducing emissions. But on the kind of big picture of, of a globally agreed carbon tax, there's essentially very little movement, sadly. So what do you think this all adds up to then? Does this COP26 seem to you to be a tipping point for private sector action on the climate? And to what extent could business determine the success of the summit? I certainly think that there's been just an enormous ramp up in in private sector kind of action and awareness about climate change in the past few years. Some of that is sincere. Some of that is kind of business motivated companies making sure they don't get whacked by an enormous carbon tax unexpectedly. And some of that is greenwashing. Clearly, the kind of private sector can't do this all by itself. And what you really need is government regulation and and carbon pricing to steer companies and investors. This is a COP which doesn't hinge on one big announcement or one big breakthrough. It's going to be made up of lots of smaller deals. And so I think what the private sector managed to get done at this COP does matter in the scheme of that and it's you know increasingly become intertwined with the process of the cop and how people view the cop as well guy great to talk to you thanks so much thanks henry and if you haven't already go and listen to the latest episode of our podcast series to a lesser degree this week BJ Ollie and Kat spoke to US climate envoy John Kerry about why climate diplomacy is so hard. They also hear from residents of the Torres Strait Islands off northern Australia. Glasgow may be a world away, but for them the stakes just couldn't be higher. And finally, Despite decades of the best efforts of campaigners and countless government and business initiatives, in many of the world's richest countries, the gender pay gap stubbornly refuses to close. According to Pew Research, in 2020, American women earned just 84 cents on every dollar earned by a man. That figure has barely budged for the past 15 years. In a new book, Career and Family, Claudia Golden tracks five generations of American women to get to the root of why that gap persists and how to conquer it. The divisions are very meaningful. It comes from the data. It comes from the voices of the past. They're all college graduate women in large measure because those are the individuals who could achieve career. And career is once again meaningful. It doesn't mean just a job. It's something that you do over a period of time coming from the Latin route to run a race as in a chariot or a carriage. Professor Golden directs the National Bureau of Economic Research's Gender in the Economy Group. And she was, incidentally, the first tenured woman economist at Harvard University. She spoke to our economics editor, Henry Kerr, for Money Talks. So the first group graduating around 1900 to 1920 or so could have either a career or a family. Very, very few in this group could have both. Let me fly over group two, which is a transition group, to group three. Group three 
is graduating college from the end of World War II to the mid-1960s, and they are as different as night and day from Group 1, married very soon after graduation, and a very, very large percent of that group have children, whereas in Group 1, only about 50% have or adopt a child in their lifetime. And now let me fly over time as well and go to the group that exists today, which is group five. And there's a lot of delay of marriage, a lot of delay of childbearing, a lot of investment in career. And the notion is to have both, not by having family first and then trying to have a career, but by crafting both of them at the same time. Today, there's still a large gender pay gap and greater among college-educated women. Some people say the driver of this is discrimination. Others say that men are more likely to choose higher-paying occupations than women. Others still that men are more aggressive negotiators when it comes to determining their pay. In the book, you downplay all of those explanations and what you call the quick fixes that are associated with believing those things are the causes and say the root cause of the problem is so-called greedy jobs. What are greedy jobs? Some of the reasons that you listed, of course, exist. There's discrimination, there's sexual harassment. But my sense, and I think there's a lot of strong evidence that that, uh, bolsters this, is that we could wipe this out. And even if we did, there would still be substantial differences in earnings and types of jobs, even among full-time workers. And the reason is that, particularly among the more highly educated, that when a couple decide to start a family, they realize that uh, kids take time. And, well, in some sense, both parents can be the on-call at-home parent. But if there are jobs that pay demonstrably more for excessive hours, rush time, weekend, evening, vacation, those are the greedy jobs. And if that exists, then the couple gets together and says, is it worth 50000 a year for us to have couple equity? And it often isn't. And because of long history of norms and traditions. It's generally in heterosexual couples. The woman who takes the more flexible, the lower paying job. And that accounts for a lot of the difference. I must say that I am not sure I have ever read an economics book uh, for my job whose thesis has resonated so strongly with so many people I've mentioned it to casually um, among friends and family and, and so on. The idea that the gender pay gap is resulting in this way from the optimizing choices of households, given the constraints they face in the economy, is a somewhat challenging one, I think, both for uh, people with a liberal in the British sense outlook, a classically liberal outlook, and for economists, both of whom are sets of people who typically think that people's choices are a guide to what's best for them. So I can imagine conservatives using your research to argue that if it's just an optimizing response to the constraints in the economy, that we don't need to worry about the gender pay gap anymore. What's wrong with that argument? Well, it's relative prices. So even the most conservative economist, and I consider myself to be 
somewhat conservative, <laughs> University of Chicago educated PhD. <laughs> uh, it's simply that you can look at relative prices and say that we can do something better. We have a set of preferences and we can go into the marketplace and we can move relative prices. That That's really all this is about. Now, we might also want to move into the political sphere and change relative prices, relative prices for elder care and, and um, child care, such as uh, universal pre-K. But it's also the case that workers have the ability, and I give the example of uh, pediatricians, that you can make the workplace better, not just for the workers, but for the clients as well. Having a group practice, they reduce the cost of flexible jobs. They increase the productivity of flexible jobs. There's nothing about this (laughs) that a good conservative shouldn't like. You you touch there on one of your uh, recommendations in the book, which is more subsidized childcare. But I'm interested in general in the extent to which we can expect firms to figure out the problem here for themselves and and solve it versus the extent to which it requires government intervention like the childcare subsidies you advocate. What's, what's the balance there? Well, I think that firms are dealing with one part of it. So subsidized childcare is really just tacking that on to something that we've already decided. We already decided as a nation that there is public school, that public school is good for in many different ways. It can pay for itself. So in the U.S., we're talking about funding universal preschool. And there are other examples in which we have programs. They just don't function very well. We have Medicaid in the U.S. There are wait lists to get disabled and elderly individuals into certain programs that allows them to live at home rather than go to nursing homes, that allows their daughters in particular not to have to take care of them, but to go into the workforce. So there are ways of making existing programs better. In terms of other things that can be done, that is really up to firms to, once again, to optimize. If the owners of the firm see that flexible jobs could be made more productive, by golly, make them more productive. Our thanks to Claudia Goldin and Henry Kerr. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. While you're with us, please take a moment to rate us, or better yet, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can also write to us directly at podcasts@economist.com. The producer is Amika Shortina Nolan. Nika Raufast is our sound engineer, and the editor is Sandra Schmoeli. I'm Henry Trix, and in London, this is The Economist. Hi. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.